Welcome to Episode 7 of The Plot, a co-production of Odessa Steps Magazine and the When It Was Cool Network. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor of Odessa Steps Magazine and host of the Winter Pals podcast. When Carl first asked us to try and come up with Halloween content, particularly Dracula-related, I initially struggled trying to match up the horror genre with either spies or heist movies. And then I realized one of my favorite shows of the last 20 years or so actually fits the bill. The pod was tongue-in-cheek last time, but it's deadly super serious this time as we look at the 1998 Channel 4 series Ultraviolet, which has nothing to do with the 2006 Mila Jolovich film of the same name. my original intro and as i was working on the podcast i was chatting to one of my friends who has worked on the magazine and has been on the pod before and i said hey i'm in the middle of doing my ultraviolet podcast and we had spent a while uh, earlier in the week discussing how much we both loved this show so i was like well are you busy and he said no and i said well do you want to do this episode and he said yes so here it <laughs> Here is, uh, from the pages of Odessa Steps Magazine, although it has been one in a long time, my friend Justin. So this is kind of serendipitous. Yeah. Yeah. Always, always uh, happy to talk about this shit, man. I love this show. Love it. Which is funny and- because I think most people have probably never heard of it, even though it was shown – in the United States, years and years ago, on the Sci-Fi Channel, I don't know if it's been shown again since. Of course, now you know you can just watch it on streaming or watch it on YouTube or whatever. But it was definitely a cult classic for a while. And you told me a funny story about how you ended up finding the show almost sort of by accident. Yeah, that's yeah. So um, as you know, I used to uh, <clears throat> I used to manage a variety of. Uh, video store establishments uh, many moons ago. And so this is probably back in like, I don't know, 2000, 2001. And I was reading the, uh, the trade mag, one of the trade magazines that we subscribe to that, you know, it was like a solicitation showing like things that you could order coming out this month or whatever. And I saw an ad or, you know, whatever for ultraviolet. It was just like a box cover for the DVD. And, um, I had no idea who any of the people in it were except for uh, Susanna Harker because she had played uh, Jane Bennett in Pride and Prejudice. And she had also played – I can't remember the character's name, but she also played the uh, the reporter who gets uh, uh, sucked into Ian Richardson's dastardly machinations in the first series of uh, the UK House of Cards back in like 1990. And so – just based on that, I just ordered it from my store on a Lark, and when I got it in, popped it in and watched it, and was immediately sucked in. I mean, the rest is history, but that's how I discovered it. Yeah, it's funny that there's only four people in the show 
uh, four main characters and two supporting characters who are on the whole show. And she may have been the most famous at the time, yet two of the other people on the show have certainly gone on to bigger careers. One, of course, is a megastar. We'll get, we'll get to who that is in a second. Um, I would argue three people became more famous than her. Okay, yeah, it's I I did not remember what his credits were, and I was looking at him and like, oh, I didn't realize he had won this many awards. So I was like, oh, then I guess maybe she is she was the not the top billing, she's I think the second the second yeah. build lead in the credits. But yeah, so in the twenty years since then. But anyway, um, yeah, I don't remember how I found out about it. I think. I don't know if it was from you or I may have like ordered it like out of the previews catalog. I think there's a good chance it was from me. And the only reason I say that is that after I watched it now, just so everybody knows this, the entirety of this series is six episodes. So you could sit down and theoretically watch it in one afternoon, which is essentially what I did. And like, as soon as I watched it the first time, I was immediate, I was like shell shocked. I mean, it was so good. It was so perfect. And I immediately just began telling everybody I knew about it. And so it's, I think it's possible that, yeah, you learned about it from me. Yeah. It's, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Like you said, either that or I probably saw it in the, or I probably, you told me about it and I ordered it from, previews like yeah. the 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 catalog that comic shop that's what comic book stores order their stuff from so yeah so the comic book equivalent of your video catalog yeah so uh rather than we're going to play a clip now from the pilot this is part of the trailer and then part of the end of the episode that sort of sets everything in motion so we'll play that now and we'll be back in just a second look just tell them the man in the photos, just tell Yeah, well, we did get your negatives back. They're full of empty streets and there's no one in them. What's all that about? May I introduce Detective Inspector Hanji March and Detective Sergeant Vaughan Rice? Someone is trying to kill me! Whatever he's telling you, he's not being straight with you. They're a death squad, Mike! Now, I know you two boys go back a long way. They've got orders to shoot me on sight! But he stopped being your friend two nights ago. Find out who is in charge! And now he's using you. Help me! Hey! Hey! They want to kill me. You believe Jack is still your friend? Well, whatever he's done, he didn't deserve a death sentence. I'm afraid that was carried out three nights ago, before you last met. Wooden ammo? Carbon. State of the art. But then so are we. I do know how you feel. What if it's not treated? Heals over in minutes. Most people don't even know they've been infected. It makes you very susceptible to suggestion. They don't need to dirty their hands much. They get asked to do it for them. So what have we got? Where's all the crosses? Holy water. Jury's out on that. It's a bit like homeopathy. It's a question of faith on both sides. They can be superstitious too. In my opinion, religion is a placebo, which isn't to say placebos can't work. Why is all this kept quiet? I mean, 
body turns up drained. Doesn't happen. Successful parasites don't kill their host. They don't drain their prey unless they want to recruit and they're very careful about who they recruit. Like we are. Thanks, Father. I've got a job. You're happy where you are after what you've seen. Sorry, I don't think I've got what it takes. Oh, I heard you did. <laughs> that was self-defense, not a career move. And the rest of society? Who defends them? Look, am I under arrest or what? Why did you join the police? Was it to help others or just yourself? Yeah, I joined the police, not the army. There's plenty of Vaughns around to recruit them. Actually, there aren't. In any case, I need investigators, not soldiers. I didn't see a lot of investigating going on. Well, that's why we need people like you. Well, I don't need people like you. You don't have any questions, then? What did you do with this body? How long has this outfit been running? This modest collection represents about seven years' work. The tip of an iceberg, I'd say. Who knows about this? I mean, who's paying? The Pope? The Church doesn't like to talk about evil these days, no. You're paying. We're all paying. You've got full government backing for this? Why not? It's a public health issue. A defence issue. Can't you at least let his family have him? I'm afraid not. Well, he's dead now, isn't he? Neutralised. They can regenerate. We just don't know how. Until we do, all these specimens are viable. It's a prison, not a cemetery. You're not the only one. We've all lost someone. That's why we're here. It's called a vocation. Yeah, vendetta and all that. These aren't isolated cases. They're organising for a reason. And what for? They don't want to wipe us out. They need us. Exactly. So what's changed? Our capacity for self-destruction. It grows at an exponential rate. You're right, of course. They don't mean us any harm. They want to save us. It doesn't sound so bad. And the only way they can save us is by controlling us. If people like you don't take a stand now, do you know where your loved ones are going to be in 50 years' time? Battery farms. Believe me, our free-range days are over. And we're back. So if you can't tell what happened there, here is the very briefest of brief synopsis before we get into discussing everything. And we're, prog- and we're going to talk about everything. You said that this is the British model. There's only six episodes, so it's not like we can discuss it without spoiling it, um, even though we, we could. But there's no point because there's only six episodes. So anyway, so it's, the 20, main- it's 22 years old, 24 years old, so – if you haven't seen it by now, I mean. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, okay. So the main character uh, is a detective sergeant named Michael Colfield, who's played by Jack Davenport, who you may know uh, in America mainly from being in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and was also in the very successful BBC show, BBC show Coupling, which was sort of their version of Friends. I guess that's probably fair to say, even though the, you know, they tried making a version here that did not, uh, like many like many British shows, they tried making an American version, and it didn't quite work. Including this one. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah. There's that too. <laughs> so, um, so our POV character uh, is this detective sergeant named Mike. Uh, he and his partner are investigating, I think, what is some kind of drug ring or something, and uh, one of their uh, contacts calls them frantically because he's being hunted down, and it turns out that he's killed in an arcade, although when they try and watch the surveillance footage, the guy who killed him isn't on there. Uh, then we learn that uh, his partner may or may not be on the take. And then very soon we're uh, well, intru- – okay, go ahead. Well, and also this is all happening in the context of this is the stag night before Mike's partner is – Mike is the best man for his partner's impending wedding, which is the next day. Yeah, there's all that. You know, I was going to say we'll get to the, the – Oh, okay. The other – the other subplot that runs through the show that I would argue isn't a hundred percent necessary, but you know, it's only six episodes, so you need, yeah. you need to pad a little. Well, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Mike is in, in the, his squad room and he's introduced to, uh, two people who are called detective inspector, Angela Marsh, who is Susanna Harker, as you mentioned, and detective sergeant Vaughn Rice, and here's the big reveal. This was 1998 Idris Elba. Nice. Arguably the first. This is yeah. This is Idris Elba before he was on The Wire. So you and I were two of the very few people who were shocked when he did not have a British accent when he was in The Wire. <laughs> well, it's funny. Like the only thing I had ever seen him in before. Like I didn't know him by name until I watched this show. But I knew him by face because he had appeared in a really hilarious uh, episode of Absolutely Fabulous. I don't know if you remember that or not, where he ends up, like, uh, mistaking, like, breath spray for uh, – it's actually uh, some kind of stiffener spray, and it makes his tongue stick. (laughs) He's like a male model kind of guy. But I didn't know what his name was, but I remembered him from that. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we'll probably end up saying this a lot, but, you know – the British world is so sort of insular and interconnected that, uh, you know, it's like, like we said, uh, Jack Davenport was in this and then he was in coupling, which was made by Stephen Moffat, who, you know, was a showrunner on Dr. Who and the guy well, we haven't mentioned yet. Joe Ahern is the guy who written, who wrote and directed the show, who later went on to uh, do episodes of Dr. Who when Stephen Moffat was the showrunner. Yeah. So again, and like you said, Susanna Harkness was in Pride and Prejudice with Julia Swalla, and Julia Swalla was in Ab Fab, which guest starred Idris Elba, and so on and so on. Yeah. So, um, these two detectives show up and start questioning Mike about his partner, who is now missing. And uh, he also no-showed the wedding, which left uh, his girlfriend, his his fiance Kirsty shell shocked. So, you know, she wants Mike to try and figure out what happened to him, et cetera, et cetera. And they tell Mike that his partner is dirty and he's involved in stuff that, uh, that he doesn't know about, but he thinks he's just, you know, on the take or become part of this drug ring or whatever. Yeah. 
Well, we soon learn it's a lot worse than that. Um, Mike's partner, and here, this would be the first and only time we use this word, a word that is never used in the context of the show. Uh, his partner is now a vampire. Yeah. Which, which is not, they are never called vampires th- throughout any of these six episodes. They are, uh, they're officially called Code Fives. Which is clever because five, of course, is V, which is the same letter as vampire, or they're more, or, or they're more derogatorily called leeches. Well, and just sort of to to you know uh, drill down on that for a second, like I love the fact that they never refer to them as vampires. I love the fact that in the first episode. You kind of have to put it together yourself what they're dealing with. Like you're in the same position that Michael is in, right? Where he's figuring stuff out too. And like, I think it's really crucial because like, I know I'm the kind of person who, if the show had been like advertised as vampire, 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 whatever, I probably would not have been as interested in it, even though, you know, I watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and stuff like that or whatever, but, like it, it, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's cleverly like blending genres and not pandering to people of either genre, and I think that's part of the charm of the show. Well, the the high concept that I usually, especially when you like sort of watch it now, it's like it's it's the X Files meets Blade. It's like I, the show, yeah. the show. Like, because this is 1998, so we're probably still in sort of the quality period of the X-Files. You Mm -hmm. know, like, it hasn't really started slipping at this point, probably. But, you know, know, um, Angela certainly very much gives off the Dana Scully vibe. She kind of has the Dana Scully haircut. She's a doctor. She wears lots of power suits. So you know, and then then you got well, you know. I, I, yeah. I I'm not sure I would ever compare it uh, like the like the blade part of it, just because like the show never tries, to, it never leans into like flashy action stuff. Like it's what I love about it is that it's like it's a procedural, but it also has like an arc, right? Because, like, the middle, you know, it's six episodes, and, like, episodes two, three, and four, and maybe five also, are all sort of, like, standalone episodes that, like, take place within this, like, broader arc that's always kind of touched on in every episode. And, I mean, part part of the reason I think the show is so great is there really is not any other show like it. Like, it... Uh, it's it's funny you mentioned the X Files because like one of the first people I showed this show to back in like 2001 was a girl that I was like dating at the time, and she was a huge X Files fan and she loved Scully, like she just thought Scully was like the best everything Scully Scully. Well, I was like, well, if you like that, you're gonna love this. And she was like really like he- you know, reticent, didn't want to watch it, whatever. And I was like. It was like, you know, Susanna Harker's character is like Scully, but like even better, you know, I think. 
more of an emotional resonance with this character just because of her like family backstory in the show and everything. So yeah, I mean, anyway, as you were saying, that's well. I guess I guess I always think I always say Blade because one of the guys is a like super super athletic big British black guy who you know people often forget that Blade was originally British. So it's just like if you took Blade and you put him on the X Files. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that like if you say that Mike is is Mulder. You know, I mean, Angela is obviously Scully, and then, and then Vaughn is is Blade, and then I guess Father Harmon, who is the fourth, the leader of the team, you know, is kind of a cross between Skinner, but he's also kind of the smoking man at the same time. But well, what's what's great about uh, you know the Harmon character, uh, the character is played by Philip Quast, right? Is that the actor's name? Yeah. Um, they never, and I, this, this just is emblematic of what is great about this show. Like we just touched on how they never say vampire. They never, ever a hundred percent say that he's a priest. Like it's hinted at and, uh, Vaughn at one point, I think derogatorily refers to him as father. Right. But you can tell he's like slagging him off. Right. Um, and the Corrin Redgrave character when they have the face off at the end, right? But they never really come out and say, oh, he's a priest and oh, whatever. Again, like with everything else in this, we're like, it allows us, it, you know, it, it assumes that the people watching the show are smart enough to put the pieces together themselves. And yeah, I always, I always read it as he was former slash defrocked slash yeah. You know, what, you that's, know, he, that's he's into that. Yeah, he's not an, an active priest because I think one of the other things we'll get to in a second is like he kind of is very defensive about certain parts of the church. Like when we, when we get to, I guess, for lack of a better term, the, the, the pedophile episode. Right, right. You know, he's, he's sort of very, taken aback that Mike immediately sort of assumes there's you know that like there's you know priest young boy stuff going on like that Mike automatically like assumes it and he's like well, no no yeah, and then he, he's like don't jump to these conclusions well right well that what's great about it is like um my, I think Mike assumes and this is all part of like how it's very like there's Man, I, I, I'm gonna sound like I'm repeating myself, but just yet another thing that like makes this show so great is the way that they accomplish character development with these minimalist brushstrokes. And um, you know, Mike, he thinks he's just gonna stick it to Pierce, or, you know, in that pedophile episode or whatever. He just assumes that Pierce is like going to get, you know, oh, he's going to defend the church, oh, whatever. And, like, he doesn't get it. No, Pierce is like, you know, if you think this if you think this guy is it or if you think this is it, fine. But, like, I think his quote is, like, let's not make lazy connections between priests and pedophiles, right? You know, he's not denying that there are pedophile priests, I'm sure. But, like, 
you know, the, and of course Mike's coming from from like you know in his law enforcement career, I'm sure he's like you know dealt with. You can tell there's like little, you know, hints when he like they confront that that pedo, uh, and Mike already knows the drill. He already knows this guy's destroyed his like you know smut stash and all this other stuff. So yeah, yeah, they they as we played in the clip like. This is definitely sort of like government run, but there's also hints that you know that the that the church capital C may or may not also be part of it. So you've got this sort of you know quasi weird conspiracy thing too going on, where you know that's part of his initial reluctance to join the team. Is one they look like this weird sort of like. CIA black seal operation and then they're also they've also got these like weird church connections so it's almost like again we're talking about the late 90s you know so you're full of the weird government conspiracy again you know like the X-Files that you know he doesn't know if he, if he can really trust these guys or not but uh, but unlike the X-Files the characters in this show each in their own way actually have logical, convincing, concrete explanations and justifications for what they're doing. Like, when, it might be in, like, episode two, the first episode where, like, Mike and Vaughn actually pair up on, like, a standalone, you know, uh, you know, case or whatever. Um, and Vaughn explains to him about, you know, uh, you know, why is this secret, blah, blah, or he's asking Vaughn, why is this secret, whatever, and Vaughn's like, you know, if you make a big thing of it, people are going to flock back to the, you know, churches and droves, and he's like, I don't fancy living in Iran, do you? You know, and so there's like this sort of like recognition, and of course, I'm sure Pierce thinks that too, it's like, nobody wants to live in a theocracy, <laughs> right? Nobody wants to like destroy civilization just in order to like combat this vampire threat. So yeah, I think I think yet another thing that's great about this show, just like sort of the concise explanations and rationales that all the different characters have for what they're doing. Yeah, it's funny. It's like you made me immediately think of like the like Navy SEAL jackbooted but led by the theocracy, and I'm like Oh, yeah, so this is also Philip Pullman. Yeah. You know, this is sort of like what is going on in the His Dark Materials, in a way. That's yeah. that's the dark side of what this, this group could be. For sure. Yeah. So the other, and since we're talking about that, the other cool gimmick of the show is, like I said, there's only six episodes, and they all have Latin titles. Yeah. So, now, let me ask, how many of them do you remember? If you're not, if you haven't looked it up already, I remember. Uh, I know, I know that. I know that one of them is Persona Non Grata. That's the final. And I know, I I remember, I know one's in the name of the Father, like in nominee Patris or something like that. Yeah, that's have, it, that's episode have, two. Yeah, I'd have to look the others up. So episode episode one is habeas corpus. Episode two is like you said, in nominee patris. Episode three is some sub judice. 
Four is Mea Culpa. That's the priest episode. Ah, okay. Five is Terra Incognita, which is also funny because the uh, the the antagonists in the episode come from Brazil. So you're sort right. Of, right. And then per, and then Persona non grata. So uh, I guess we'll do, I'll do a brief summary of like some of the episodes just so we can like discuss them as a whole and not. So episode one is the pilot. That's what we've been talking about when, you know, Mike's partner is turned and then Mike has to kill, Mike kills him. That's his ashes that uh, they're putting away in the clip that we played. Uh, episode two is involved is them investigating some rich people who are apparently the money behind uh, whatever their, the, the plot is as, as it were. Uh, episode three is there's a woman who is a lawyer who uh, basically they're trying to figure out if they can artificially inseminate a woman with um, code five antibodies or such as it were to see if they can basically grow right. new, new people. Yeah. So then there's a struggle too about once they find out that once they find out it's a vampire baby, what's going to happen, and then who's going to get control of the baby, and what are they going to have to do? So you can just imagine how what? heavy that episode gets. Oh, yeah, it's super heavy, super heavy. Yeah. So episode four is the is the priest episode we were talking about when um it starts with a kid at um a. A boy school who was apparently being put upon by one of the priests in the school, and then he wigs out and basically kills him with an exacto knife. Yeah, and then which leads to him running away, and that's when he's picked up by this groomer and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then there's all other parts of that. Um, episode five is when we start getting sort of we're building towards the climax. There are these. Uh, there's a brother and sister that come in from Brazil and it turns out he's being tested. The, they, they have been pumping this guy. This guy has sickle cell. Yeah. And it turns out that they've been pumping him with artificial blood to see if he can live with it or um, if it'll work and if they can, if make them making artificial blood actually works. Because, well, because, well, yeah, a point that needs to be underscored is like they, they touch on this a few different times in the show that like the vampires are preoccupied with anything that could contaminate their blood supply. So they fund these sort of like nonprofit research hospital type places that are doing research on like blood disorders and things like that. Yeah, which again, this is the 1990s, so we have another. There's a vampire stuff is always a parable about sex and blood, and of yeah. course, you know, vampire stuff in the 90s is often, you know, has to do with HIV and AIDS. So yeah. you know, this is yet another metaphor. And episode five, we also meet um, this guy who yeah. uh, uh, we meet a guy the. On the same plane that the two people from Brazil arrive on, uh, there's also cargo, which turns out to be coffins. Yeah. And they hijack 
um, Mike ends up following a truck full of five of them, and then they end up with the six back in the headquarters, and it turns out uh, that one actually hatches, for lack of a better term. And so we're introduced to this that guy you know, who you mentioned earlier. Corn Redgrave. Corn Redgrave, who you know is a who is John Doe, I think. They don't. I don't know if they. Have, yeah. Well, they they find his name out in the in the last episode. Yeah. But he's he's basically there, and he's sort of like part plot exposition, part Iago, trying to like sort of possibly recruit Harmon, because we've also learned by this point. This is another, and then episode six is when everything happens. Um, well, well, well. I was going well, to say the yeah. uh, like the two the two of the bigger subplots. Uh, one is it turns out that Harmon has lymphoma. So, and again, blood disease. And we haven't mentioned yet, but Angela and her husband were both cancer researchers and doctors. And then we learn later how important her husband actually was. So we've got this plot going through. So Harm is trying to get through this case. And then he's say she's trying to get him to take his medicine. He doesn't want to because he's it's afraid it'll dull his senses and won't make him uh, yeah. as sharp as he needs to be. In the meantime, the John Doe guy is sort of trying to subtly manipulate him. Like, he keeps trying to talk to Harmon alone, and they won't let him. And then he finally sneaks in, and he's basically sort of saying, you know, you're going to die. You've got this blood disease, but, you know, there's an easy way around that. Well, it's it's also important, I think, to underscore that when those coffins come into the country from Brazil or wherever they come from – you know, from our perspective, it's like, oh, this one got diverted here and blah, blah, blah. But the vampires had, like, laid it all out. They always intended the Corn Redgrave character to be captured so that he could get FaceTime with, with Harmon. Right. The, yeah. others, the other subplot is, involves uh, Kirsty, who we mentioned is in the pilot, who was, you know, left at the altar and Jack and her kind of have feelings for each other. You mean Mike and, then, and her? Yeah, Mike and her. It's like Mike and Jack Davenport. It's sort of annoying. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so... Yeah, it's, clear, yeah, it's, clear, it's clear from the get-go that even when he's being, like, the good friend and best man and everything, that Mike has feelings for her. And so, but by the end of the first episode, he has to basically leave his old life behind to become part of this unit. But she doesn't want to take that no for an answer, so she keeps trying to figure out what's happened to him. She tra- um, The other person we haven't mentioned um, is a woman who may or may not be one of Mike's exes, but she... Has she worked for a different sort of secret government organization? So she can, she's basically the person Jack can go to if he needs sort of super secret information. I think she mentioned that she's in T Branch, which I think is uh, counterterrorism. Okay, well, I think that yeah, I think that's mentioned. Okay, 
So she, so eventually Kirsty goes to her to try and figure out if she knows what's happened to Mike and she keeps trying, she tells her to, you know, leave it or whatever. And she won't, she won't take no for an answer. So she hires an investigative reporter to try and figure out what's happened to Mike. Little do we know, and of course, here's one of the stunning swerves in this, that they appear to be, like, the reporter guy, not surprisingly, uh, you know, becomes attracted to Kirstie because she's, she's very hot. So, but we also, but we learn by like episode, yeah, by episode four, uh, they're having dinner at her house and, they're eating dinner and then he immediately throws it up and which is like your first red flag. And then you're like, Oh crap. He's actually a vampire. And they tease with them kissing and making out. And like the, you know, the classic exposed neck in a vampire movie where you're like, is he going to bite her? Or is he not going to bite her? And then, uh, eventually Jack realizes that this, They've realized the investigative report. Yeah, me and Mike. The, <laughs> I just keep doing it. The uh, they realize that the reporter is close to finding Mike, so Mike decides to meet with Kirsty. And he also he also now that he knows that they might be an item, he's all he's all annoyed about this. Yeah. So he goes to meet her in a bar, and Mike suddenly realizes that she might actually have been turned already. And then we get to then, uh, and then it turns out she's not, but the reporter named Jacob actually ends up using her as a hostage because they figured that's how they can get, they can get to Mike and they want to basically do your classic 1960 spy prisoner swap because they have Kirsty and they want to trade Kirsty for as we learn, there's a uh, – one of the people that was doing lots of this research for the vampires was Angela's husband after he had been turned but before they killed him. So the vampires want Mike to sneak into the vault, steal Angela's husband's ashes, and then trade them for Kirsty. Because so, – yeah, because, I mean, I don't know if we've talked about this yet or not, but, like, you know, every, you know, obviously every vampire, you know, movie or TV show or comic book or whatever has its own rules within its universe about how vampires work. And in this world, vampires can be resurrected from their ashes if the blood of another vampire is added to it. But they don't. But but we don't know that yet. Right, exactly, exactly. They, in the in the clip, they say they can be resurrected, but we don't know how yet. It, yeah, exactly. It's a big reveal when it happens. Yeah, so, and then it turns out we see Mike go into the vault, and we see Mike steal some ashes. And then they find out about it after he's already done it, and they go to meet to, for the swap, and then Angela and Vaughn are like, in the rooftop across the street, ready to shoot. Yeah, Vaughn's got, like, you know, the, the you know, 308 sniper rifle trained on, like, the, uh, 
<laughs> on the bridge down below. Yeah, it's it's very like you said, it's very nineteen sixties East Germany checkpoint scenario. Well and also like, yeah, backstory time, Vaughn used to be a soldier and his entire like platoon or or, or whatever in the Gulf War back in the early in nineteen ninety one was wiped out by a vampire and he was the only one who survived and that's how he got recruited in the first place. Yeah. The, yeah. The only, uh, like I said, they tease a lot of sort of the vampire lore in this. The only thing we know that's definitely consistent is they definitely can't go out in sunlight because we see at least one vampire accidentally because they can go out in the daytime, but they're in like, Super, super tinted window cars. Right, right. You know, like, like they were, like they were rock stars or something. And then, um, they got, they, they get into a traffic accident and the guy who they hit gets so mad he takes a pipe and starts breaking through the window of the car and he breaks the window and he burn, it burns up, uh, the vampire that was driving. What? Well, one of the other little wrinkles that they do with their vampires in, in this universe is that when um, vampire like when they get staked or when they get shot with like the carbon wood bullets through the heart, or if they're exposed to the sun too much, they they actually like combust and explode. And so, yeah, I think a little bit of that happened in that car episode too. Yeah, and he ends up in the woman. Is that the episode where the woman gets gets like the fingers burned into her arm, or is that? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. yes yeah. There's a there's a woman in the car with the vampire, and then as he's burning, he grabs her arm, and so she gets like four burn marks, four finger burn marks on her arm. And and the, and another thing that they do another. Uh, and keep in mind, these rules aren't all just sort of like laid out in exposition fashion. It's again, it's something we have to kind of like figure out, or it's you know, it's 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 given to us in dribs and drabs across the whole series. But like vampires in the ultraviolet verse, um, one of the things is like when they uh, suffer damage, like from sunlight or whatever. They're permanently damaged. They never heal. And they're in pain forever if it's something painful. So that's another, like, sort of wrinkle that's kind of interesting. Yeah, and then we get to the, the last episode, and it turns out what they've been building towards. All of the all of the episodes we've seen, whether all, you know, they're this kind of blood issue, that kind of blood issue. And it does lead to the fact that they're trying to create synthetic blood so they don't actually need people anymore. And it turns out that the John Doe guy that we're, that we've been talked about was actually, well, first he was a nuclear scientist and then it turns out he became an anti-nuclear activist. And then he was going to die because he had some form of cancer when he was turned again, paralleling what the, what's happening with Harmon and you know what they want to do is uh they've also been responsible for all of the giant forest fires that have been going on you know that you know they 
show a couple times, like, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of acres burning in Brazil. Again, Brazil, where, you know, these guys had come from uh, in this episode. That it turns out what they actually want to do is start a nuclear winter, which would, you know, end up with, I think they said, like, like it's either, I think it's like a year's worth of, like, you know, permanent cloud cover. Which, you know, and this is something, you know, you occasionally see in vampire fiction is the, you know, how can vampires get rid of the sun? You know, it's sort of like the gimmick in 30 Days a Night. It sort of reminds me of the underwater vampires in that one issue of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. It's like, where can you, how can you set this where there's no sun? Well, it's like, okay, well, we could be in Alaska in the middle of winter where there's no sun for a month or whatever. Or we put it at the bottom of a flooded lake where there's never any sun. Or we'll just make nuclear winter. So that's that's the end goal that we learned the vampires have in this episode. Yeah. And then we get to the we get to the end, and we uh, as we were saying before, we get to the the bridge swap where we think. Uh, that he's got Angela's husband. But it turns out it's not Angela's husband. Who is it? It's Stephen Moyer. It's uh, it's his uh, partner. It's Mike's former partner and Kirstie's fiance. Which, so then there's your moment of, oh, this isn't what we were expecting. And then... And his fiance, the, his partner and the fiance, their name, their name, Jack. Yeah, that's yeah, that's why that's why it's annoyingly confusing. Yeah. So Jack immediately first threatens Kirsty and then immediately flees by jumping off one of the London bridges and then into the Thames and escapes. Although we do briefly see him again at the end. And then they uh but yeah, that's when we learn that the vampires are resurrected by one of the by the blood of another vampire. We see him, you know, materialize like he was in an episode of Star Trek. Yeah, because Jacob, like, cuts his own wrist open and, like, you know, dribbles his blood on the ashes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so, uh, that's basically how it ends. We learn uh, Kirsty is apparently uh, mad at Jack because he thought that or she's mad at Mike because he brought back Jack thinking that would make everything right or blah, blah, blah. So, but you know, one of the last things in the episode is like her being, her slapping him and walking off. Well, it's not that, it's not that he thought it would make it right. It's that like the only thing that would get through to her and make her stop looking for Jack is if she saw with her own eyes that this dude's a, a vampire now. And hey. yeah. Even though she does know by now that there are vampires because she eventually figures it out once she's being held hostage by Jacob. She tries to escape yeah, and then gets caught and then has to be taken back and then they go to the the rendezvous. But yeah, then it finally ends with um, with Jack and Mike having this conversation, you know, in a park somewhere saying, you know, it's not over yet. And, you know, him escaping and Mike kind of being all crestfallen. Like, there there, there really isn't a happy ending to the show. It's like they foiled the big plot by the vampires, but 
it's not over yet. Well, one of the things that I think is great about, you know, one of the many, many, many things that's great about the show is that the vampires are not presented as, like, two-dimensional cardboard villains, right? Uh... They're, they're not they're not presented as mindless demons doing the bidding of a demon lord or something like that. They have like rational, comprehensible like goals. Like they want to survive. They want to you know ensure their own what survival. Uh, they know they're being hunted. You know it all sounds like very plausible, right? And one of my favorite quotes in the whole show, because uh, somebody's making this argument. It might have been Mike, or you know, or Angie. Even I forget one of one of them is making an argument uh, to Pierce, and Pierce just shuts it down. He's like, "They're outside time," and it's like it's such a great line. It just put it encapsulates everything. He's like, "This is why we can't coexist with them." They're they're outside a fundamental like <laughs> you know uh dimension of of the of existence, right? So yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have a couple times where they basically you know well a lot of times they're you know through many of the episodes they're trying to sort of preach appeasement and coexistence. And it's like, you know, we're not as bad as you say we are, you know, it's kind of like we have a, a disease and, you know, we just want to, you know, live together. And then sometimes they're like, and it's like, all plausible. That's, that's what makes that's right. what sells. It's plausible. And then, but then sometimes you also get like the, a guy saying, you know, I'll be here in 50 years. How about you? Yeah. But, you know, like I can, I can outlast you. I can outweigh you. Well, like to, to you know, pivot just a, a a second like something that this show also excels at is like crafting these just sort of like gut-wrenching like to the nth degree like tense moments that aren't phony they aren't like contrived like for example when Vaughn is like uh, with that Brazilian woman and he knows that she's full of crap and he's trying to figure out what the deal is. And Vaughn's not as savvy as Mike when it comes like Vaughn's not a policeman. Mike's a policeman, but Mike's off like in the helicopter chasing that truck or whatever. And Vaughn kind of kind of gets suckered. He gets hit on the head and then he wakes up in this warehouse with the doors chained and he's just surrounded by these three coffins that all have like timers on them. And like that whole, the whole sequence as like, there's no dialogue, right? It's just like Idris Elba, man, he's amazing in this whole sequence. He realizes he's done. He is done. And like, he goes through this whole gamut of emotion where like, he's not going to let himself get taken. And so he takes his gun out and he puts his gun up to his chin and he's sitting there. Man, you, you think he's gonna do it? I well, the first time I watched it, I thought that he actually was gonna like pull the trigger. Well, I mean, you've made, you think about it. Like we've made it through five episodes, and like none of the good guys have been killed yet. And there's really four of them, so it's kind of like you're not you're probably not killing the point of view character. 
But it's like you could easily, and you're probably not killing the head guy. Yeah. But it's like, so you could easily see by the end of the episode we're either losing Angie or Vaughn. Because, you know, and again, there's your there's your trope about who gets killed first in the horror movie. You know, it's like it's like it's either the woman or the minority. So trope subverted happily. But but like, you know, what what makes it work is that, like, I mean, we have to believe. Right. We like. I, You could have sold me on anybody dying except for maybe Mike at that point. And that's what like I'm like, I'm at I'm the edge of my seat. The whole. uh it's just it's gut wrenching to even like think about it now. Like that was, and then also the other sequence that's that's like really just super well executed. You just talked about it. The whole sequence in the final episode with with the bridge, the bridge of spies, you know, kind of like trade off the hostage for the for the uh, jar of ashes, and the whole the way it's like framed, and we keep cutting back to like Pierce and Vaughn and Angie. Well, it's Vaughn and Angie, and you don't know where Pierce is, but Pierce, like, makes a dramatic appearance, right? And his character is, like, the fount of wisdom, but not in any kind of a hokey way, not in any kind of a, you know, uh, you know, trite or glib or what. He's just like, man, just everything about this show is so great. It's so well done. Anyway, I love it. Well, and again, I mean, this is now sort of much more common in American TV, but, you know, this is, again, an example of, you know, why the British model always used to be so much better for television shows. It's like, you know, this is one one series, six episodes, all written and directed by the same guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, if this was an American series, you know, I mean, one, you'd have 24 episodes where stuff gets padded out, you know, and, you know, you probably, it'd be a lot more hokey. There'd probably be a lot more sentimentality in it. I mean, you know, one of the good things, it's like, even though, you know, one of the subplots is this whole sort of Kirstie's in love with Mike and trying to figure out what's happened to him. It's like, there's sort of like very little room for like, uh, you know, the Sam and Diane effect. It's like, it's, it's kind of teased between Angie and Vaughn, like late in the, late in the, late in the series. So great. That whole moment, like, um, yeah, well, again, like going back to my, you know, what I said earlier about how they do things with like a minimalist brush. When he's with Angie, that scene where he takes Angie home or he stops by her house. I forget how it's like all set up. And she invites him in. And they have a drink and sits there. And they just kind of, he holds her hand for a second and then he leaves. And like that, when Vaughn realizes that she's always going to be in love with her, you know, dead vampire, undead vampire husband. And that, uh, it's it's really heartbreaking because Vaughn is like he's so in love with her, but like it's never spoken, it's never made explicit. He never t- it's never talked about. 
we're totally getting this just from like the looks on these actors. The actors are being allowed to do their jobs, and, well, and the yeah, the script's not getting in the way of it. The interesting thing about that scene is right before it. This is sort of like they've all come back to the headquarters. You know, this is after Vaughn has escaped the the vampire warehouse. Yeah, that that's when it was. Yeah, and they and she was wor- she was worried. Well, it's funny because. He comes back and it's Vaughn and Mike and they're sort of, he's sort of like, you know, were you worried or whatever? And he's like, no, there was ever, you know, like I, you know, I was okay and blah, blah, blah. And then Mike says, do you want to go get a drink? And he says, no, I'm good or something to the effect. And then like Mike leaves and then Angie comes in or he goes into where Angie is and they're talking. And then Angie's like, do you want to get a coffee? And then he yeah. pauses and he's like, "Yes." And so yeah. that's that's when it's like, oh, that's when you go, "Oh, there's there there yeah, there's definitely a, a, an undercurrent between these two. Well, yeah, and I mean, and like like all of the best works of art, no matter what the medium, no matter what the genre, it'll it leaves plenty of room for like the viewer to read certain things into the text like once you see that scene it makes more sense why he didn't kill himself i mean part of it yeah he he came up with a clever way to get out of that trap but he had to be thinking about her right a little bit when he was he was sitting there and he had the gun up to his chin um and just yeah yeah yeah, him and Angie, like that whole that whole scene, and uh, it's all it's all just like so heartbreaking. Love and there's it. also the fact that this really never really goes anywhere in the grand scheme of the show. But the deal is too that like Angie and her husband had two kids, and one of them got turned and killed with her husband, yeah. and the other one didn't. So she's got like one daughter still. Yeah, and, and she's super protective, as you might imagine. And then, so like the daughter starts getting resentful about it. Yeah, and so you know, you you like you only see her like maybe twice. It's like you know, once she's like locked in the bathroom because she wants some privacy, and then one time she's outside playing basketball while yeah. Angie, Angie, and Pierce are talking in the living room, and they're like, she's like. He says, what's wrong with, with your daughter? And she's like, oh, she's mad because, like, I made her quit the basketball team because, like, it wasn't safe for her. So she's out now practicing. She's, like, bouncing the ball to make her mad. And then she comes through and runs through the living room and says hello and won't stop her or anything. She's, so it's like well, it's setting the scene for something, but we just never get it. Well, when when they show – the couple of times they show ex- the exteriors of Angie's house – you can see that it's basically like Fort Knox. Like she's got this like wall that this retaining wall that you know uh, surrounds the property, security gates, all kinds of. I mean, she's got everything. Well, you know, and it's also, funny. It's funny because it's a mixture of high tech and low tech. Because we well, see her like turning on and off the like high tech security system, but then like the 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 gates have spikes on the top, so it's it's well, like. It's like old school wooden spikes to keep the vampires out. Well, this, well, this also uh, to touch on something we talked about earlier 
about ultraviolets, you know, it, its own idiosyncratic rules about how vampires work. Like, they keep the traditional, the, you can't see a vampire, the, va- you know, the vampire doesn't have a reflection in a mirror, but they add to it that, like, nothing, no machine, no machine can, like, record a vampire. Like, so they can't be recorded on audio, they can't talk on the phone, they can't, a movie camera can't take their picture, and so this has all kinds of extra interesting implications, and also makes it possible, like, if you, that's why they run, you know, you know, the agents in the show, they all have pistols, but the pistols all have these, like, little viewfinder screens that hook onto the bottom, and if you're looking at a person and you don't see anything in the viewfinder screen, you know you've got a leech. Which leads to another great thing, and there, there's the, one of the moments of crisis in the show is in the pedophile episode where they think the they've tracked this one guy who they think is the vampire because he has, you know one of those skin conditions where he can't go out, you know, he's like super albino. Right. So he can't go outside and they think, Oh, this is really a vampire. He doesn't really, you know, have this disease or whatever. And so they break into his house ready to kill him. And he's standing there with like a 12 year old, like he's on the bed and there's like a 12 year old standing next to him. Right. Who they think is like, you know, one of his targets and Mike just unloads into the guy, and then yeah, they had yeah, back. <laughs> yeah, and then he sees that he can see the guy in the viewfinder, and it turns out the twelve-year-old kid is actually the vampire. Yeah, the twelve-year-old kid. They they cut to a shot where they show that the kid actually has blood on his mouth. And so, and then they and then they explain, you know, like one of the things like like that ruined it for this for the 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 guy that they that Mike shot is. You know, they set him up with, like, this eternal 12-year-old vampire. Well, right, because the albino albino with the skin condition is, like, a pedophile. Right. But, and he has some kind of, they've they've given him a blood disease, which, that's how the, uh, the one, the, the kids in the school, like, are showing some signs that may or may not be meningitis, or they may have been in, been infected by a leech. Yeah. But it turns out that, like, they give this guy, this eternal 12-year-old boy, you know, which is like his, you know, his fancy whatever, but it turns out, since he's a vampire, he can't record it. So, like, he can't... Well, well, not not only that, but, like, okay... You know, it, it goes into the whole, like, okay, part of the issue with, like, pedophiles is, like, you know, the power dynamic, right? And, well, how can you have this power dynamic with a 12-year-old who's probably, like, 150 years old or something, you know? <laughs> like, or for all he knows. So, you know, he he's already leading – he's leading the worst of all possible lives, basically. <laughs> Right, and then, you know, Mike is going to quit because he accidentally almost killed a human instead of killing the vampire. But it's funny that, you know, he's he's ready to go, and they, he goes in to, like, talk to Harmon, and Harmon's kind of like, 
Yeah, don't do it again. Well, and something else, and you know what? For as many times as I've watched this show, and I've probably watched it 10 to 20 times over the last 20 years, at least once a year, um, and I never really thought stopped to think about this until now, but we also have to consider the fact that like a lot of the stuff in this show, especially like that episode and the way Mike reacts to it, I mean, all this stuff is taking place in a country where like nobody has guns and the police don't have guns. And as Americans watching it, we just take it for granted that like every police force in every town in the country is like a SWAT unit ready to deploy at the drop of a hat, right? Shoot first and ask questions later. That's how American law enforcement, you know, sometimes appears. Uh, No, I know it's not really like that everywhere, but all too frequently it does give that appearance, right? And like in England and Great Great Britain, like, you know, this is very, you know, cops just don't shoot people because they're never in a position to. So, yeah, that makes more sense that Mike would react that way. It also sort of makes their SWAT team sort of even more, even more intimidating when you you see them like the couple times where you've got like, you know, a unit full of these, you know, guys with assault rifles and the black ski masks and helmets breaking into places. That one of the very few possible, and I'm not even going to say that this is even something you could criticize, right? This is more along the lines of like, if somebody were hell-bent and determined to, like, nitpick something. Like, so, and, and again, not even really a true nitpick. It's just, I guess, more of an observation, wondering aloud. But, like, okay, this secret organization, and it's like, it's Pierce, it's Angie, it's Vaughn, it's Mike. But then there's also, whenever they need it a couple different times, they have, like, a team of SWAT guys who are all armed with, like, vampire killing, you know, carbon ammunition when they need it. I mean, I guess it makes sense that, like, there's other people in this department who are also just sworn to secrecy. Um, We're just left to assume that. It's never sort of, like, spelled out. And that's okay. I like that they don't spell things out. It's the opposite of what American shows do. (laughs) Well, and, you know, like you said, you know, at one point, you know, they order, you know, they order, uh, checkpoints and roads shut down and they sent out commandeer a helicopter to follow the the truck full of the the vampire casket cargo things and it's like well because a lot of times everyone just assumes that there's some kind of like CID MI5 right it's very much need to know so it's like again you know Mike's a cop so he can act like a cop and you know, Vaughn can act like, you know, some sort of a soldier in like an MP or whatever. You know, so you've got so they and she's a doctor, so they're all like, you know, positions of authority. So it's just like, you know, you come in in, in your sharp dress suit and you say, because a couple times, you know, they're going through the whole thing and then they're interviewing somebody and they're just like, who are you again? Who do you work for? And that especially happens, you know, with Mike's ex girlfriend who, you know, works for the anti, you know, she yeah. definitely, she, I mean, she knows these guys are super secret, but she doesn't know how. And then, you know, well, they, because, eventually, 
Well, because like they, uh, she's able to find out their identities because they have them on paper. They're tucked away in T Branch where she works, but she can't find out anything more other than that. But of course, it's all just like a cover. And of course, this is 1999, so you know. You either have rudimentary or magical computer hacking, depending on, you know, how it is, because, you know, you know, the, the couple of times we see people computer with computers, you know, they're definitely, you know, late 90s, you know, Microsoft 97 computers or nothing. I mean, well, really, even in even in, you know, the, the special unit, you don't really see. I mean, you've got high tech stuff, but not. You know, you don't really see any sort of like wizardy, you know, computer hacking going on. Well, going back to what you were just saying before about like, oh, they can like they can call ahead and set up roadblocks and order this and blah blah blah. You know, and uh, Angie uh, in that one episode, she tells that woman that she who's like the nurse, she's like, if you don't tell me what I need to know, I'll have you stricken from the National Health Service registry she with a one phone call she can get somebody's like license to practice medicine revoked just on her word alone and it makes me think back to like the first really great speech in the show that it concludes that first episode where they're in the the vault and uh pierce is like no you could ask him if it's if it's the church and pierce is like no we're paying for it. You're paying for it. It's a public health issue. <laughs> Which, again, is that whole sort of, like, this is science vampires, not magic vampires. Yeah. I mean, there's still... What I like about it is... It's kind of like how... It's how it would be if something like this happened in the real world, where, obviously the very notion of vampires who are like immortal and they live by drinking blood, right? That's sort of the basics. And then lots of, you know, your mileage may vary based on what what the other rules are, but like at the core of it, there's always going to be an unexplainable, magical central element to what vampires are, but that would not stop normal science scientific humans from like trying to analyze and figure it out and categorize and you know all this other kind of stuff that's what's great about the show is like this is i feel like this is kind of how it would be if something like this really existed well it's like you can kind of you know sciencey techno babble your way out of oh they have to drink blood because of this kind of yada 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 it's like when you get to the whole, they don't appear on film and you can't see them in a mirror. Then you're like, I'm right. not sure. I'm not sure it had a techno babble that. So you just well, kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. Well, well, a great, well, uh, a great example of this in action is uh, like garlic. Um, you know, they. I think Angie's the one who isolated the compound in garlic that vampires are repelled by, right? Right. There's no, exp- yeah, you know, she can't, she doesn't know why. They just know that that's what it is, right? And so they can distill that compound and they can like create things with it, like a spray or something else or whatever. 
It doesn't have to be like a bulb of garlic. So yeah, I mean it's uh, or the same thing with like it doesn't have to be a wooden stake that goes to their heart. They could come up with like carbon, you know, carbon bullets that do the same thing. Um, which again is like it, adds, it just adds like a layer of texture of reality of whatever to what's in essence just like a magical fantasy uh, conceit. That's like some of the weird ways they've found over the years to like have bad guys fight the Golden Age Green Lantern because his, you know, he's resistant to wood. Yeah. So it's, you know, so it's kind of like, well, okay, I can hit him with a tree. That's wood. But then you can get weird things like I made something out of paper, which is a tree. So I can do that, you know, and then eventually you, know, you get to the thing where he, you know, he unfortunately runs into meeting Swamp Thing, and you're just like, okay, you're you all better off here. <laughs> you're up, you're up the creek without a paddle. <laughs> so, in conclusion, we can definitely say watch this show. For sure, that's a, that's an understatement. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's one of my. Ten favorite shows of all time. Um, I watch it. I try to watch it at least like once a year, and I watch it straight through, no breaks. Um, Which is funny because we were talking the other day, and I said it's hard to watch more than like two of these in a row because of how heavy they are. And you're like, I can't do that. I got to watch all six at once. They're all <laughs> six in a row. Well, yeah, because like. It, what, part of the magic of the show is even though it's only six episodes and they're able to have like this awesome arc or multiple arcs while also having like the standalone procedural elements throughout the show. And they're also able to make every, like every episode, they slowly build, slowly build, slowly build. Then the last two or three are like, okay, this is cliffhanger territory. And it's just, it's just so perfect. Like, um, I felt this way, not to this degree, but did you, did you watch the HBO show Barry? No. Okay. Well, the first season of Barry, I felt this way about where like, and I think the first season was only like eight episodes. It was perfect beginning to end. They should have just ended the show right there. No more episodes. It's perfect exactly the way it is. Well, now we're on like the fourth season and it's still, it's, it's good. But these, the second, third, fourth season are not nearly as good as like that first season of Barry. Or maybe they're only on the third season. I forget. But either which way, the, the su- subsequent seasons are not nearly as good because like they're just kind of like, they're spinning their wheels. They're, you know, treading water a little bit. And what I respect about Ultraviolet, about Joe Ahern and Ultraviolet is like, you know, it doesn't have to be anything more than this. Six episodes is enough. You get the best of television. You get the best of like sort of a movie, really. And, uh, yeah, I just I don't have enough good things to say about it. It's awesome. Yeah, I don't know the last thing that I binge watched from like as a finite concept, it may have been, well, one of it may have been necessity based because I think when the first season, when HBO did the 
his dark materials, I think I basically had like like I had a free week of HBO and I was like I waited until the last episode came out and then I was like, Well, I better watch these now while I have the like the week and so I sort of binged through them because Yeah. Yeah the, the only other thing is like I may have binge watched Good Omens when that came out, but again with those two things that's me also knowing the story and it's partially wanting to watch it and part partially wanting to see how they adapt it. Yeah. So, you know, especially with Good Omen, since I know, you know, gaming was hands-on with it. But, like, you know, I can't think of any TV shows since then that, like, I haven't. And like I said, I really, this one I have a hard time binge-watching, only because, it's like, you get to the third episode, the baby episode, and you're just like, man, it's like, yeah, I got to stop and take a walk. Come back. It's like maybe I'll just watch the rest of these tomorrow. Well, it holds up like because that's the first episode where, or maybe that's like the only episode where like Angie's really featured, you know, and we kind of get to see her. Like, you know, this is twenty something years ago. And here's a character. I'm going to go off on a little like you know tangent here for a second, but like one of the things that annoys me is you'll see people complaining about or not complaining. I, that's the wrong way to say it. If there's a show where like there's a there's a protagonist that is a woman who's like doing like stereotypical male stuff, you know, cartoonishly male stuff. You'll see the pre you'll see stuff in the press where it's oh this is a strong what a strong female character. Blah 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 as if we've never seen strong female characters before. And Angie Marsh, right, especially in that third episode, like this is like the epitome of a strong female character. And she doesn't have to be like she's not like a cartoon, you know, she's not like uh what like she's demonstrating strength in all these different ways, ways that are specific to womanhood that no other character in this show could do. And without pandering, without being too maudlin about anything, like there's a sequence where like Vaughn is trying to like reason with her or convince her of something. And he's like, well, so-and-so might get taken or whatever. And She's like, there's worse things than being taken. You remember that? Yeah. And she slams the door and she like drives off, right? And ah, uh, well, yeah, but yeah, that episode is such a, it's like one gut punch after another, and you just you feel for that woman, that lawyer who's uh, at the center of all that. Ah, uh, great stuff, great writing, I, acting. Well, it's funny too that you don't know it at the time too, but. I mean, the premise is that, again, you know, they want to see if they can create a vampire baby through, like, artificial insemination. Yeah. And you're like, okay, so you've got this woman, and her husband was a vampire, and, like, they want to see if they can use her to carry and have this baby. And you're thinking, well, Angie is, like, a doctor, and her husband was a vampire. Well, and and, that's... yeah, you know, so That's, it's like not only is there's the whole I'm a woman, you're a woman, we know about childbirth thing. It's the whole I had to 
I had a vampire husband too, and unfortunately, he had to be killed. Here's the thing. Well, something that we haven't like mentioned in in as regards to this, the big reveal at the end of that episode is that her husband is a vampire who's still around. She thought her husband had been dead for years. And so she's been, like, fruitlessly trying to, like, get pregnant via artificial insemination because, like, they had, like, banked his sperm at a sperm bank. And she had no idea that, like, her dead husband was actually still, quote, unquote, alive, undead. And uh, this poor woman, just one thing after the other. And it's weird, too, because in a way, in the beginning, it makes it look like he's kind of – there's some kind of vampire that's like her guardian, guardian. A, guardian yeah. angel. Because exactly. it's, it starts when she's about to get mugged or worse yeah. in a car park, and suddenly she faints, and then the two hoods are, like, violently, <laughs> ki- violently killed. Yeah. And you're like, oh, wait, so – there's a vampire, but he's, you know. Well, and and, and uh, going back to something we said earlier, too, like, yes, there's a vampire plot, right? And this is, and part of that plot is doing all these different experiments, the blood, you know, uh, disease thing and in vitro fertilization, whatever. But one thing that's also clear, at least from my perspective, I, her vampire husband does still love her, right? Right. I, th- I think that's very clear. It's not he, he, you know, it's not just we're trying to manipulate. I mean, they are trying to like manipulate stuff and like further the plot or whatever. But this guy who decided to become a, you know, to go over and become a vampire, like in furtherance of that plot, also did it because he loves his wife and wants to give her something that she could never have. And so I think again like again like the vampires in this even though they are the adversaries, they do need to be stopped. We're all on board with that. I think Pierce makes a pretty convincing case, but like you know, they're not just sort of cardboard evil. They're not two-dimensional evil, you know. They do you know like a like Jean Renoir said but in the uh, uh, rules of the game, the terrible thing is everyone has his own reasons, and that includes the vampires. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, we've said any number of times. It's like some of, some of the vampires, when preaching appeasement, may actually mean it. Yeah, you know, like they're, they're just like the street level vampire. Like, you know, when Jack gets turned, you know, it's kind of like. You know, yes, he's done some bad stuff, but it's like, is he, you know, he kind of is kind of 90s movie villain bad. But, you know, he's also like the first person we hear making these sort of like, you know, why can't we all just get along speech? Well, well, and also, uh, Jack, um, you know... He doesn't become a vampire because he's a villain who wants to, you know, had, you know, ideologically agrees with like the idea of world domination or something. He becomes a vampire because like they set him up. They got him on the take and 
when he was deep into them for like th- tens and tens of thousands of pounds, they forced his hand and were like, now you have to join us because we want something from you. And the only other alternative he had was go to jail for corruption, which is what was going to happen if he didn't go over. So, you know, again, it's 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 sort of like a nuanced, like, it's not a black and white. All these different participants in the vampire conspiracy. It's not like they, they, they attended a vampire Nuremberg rally and they all sort of read the vampire mind comp or something. They all kind of have their own sort of like motivations and rationales for kind of like participating. I would say, and even when we get, you know, John Doe at the end, who's not like the leader, but he's definitely a big wig. Yeah. You know, he's again, persuasive and, you know, we oh, understand. He's the, he's the serpent in the garden of Eden. Everything the serpent says in the Garden of Eden is true. That's what makes it so compelling. And, uh, I mean, he's totally the serpent in the Garden. So, let's see. So, he's heel. He's Iago. He's the serpent. Yeah. And he's, I was, I was say, what do we say? What's the worst thing about heels in wrestling? They often tell the truth. That's right. And why That's do right. people hate them? They hate, they hate them because they tell the truth. <laughs> well said. So definitely, everyone, go watch this. Like I said, it's on Amazon Prime right now. Um, if you do not have Amazon Prime, conveniently enough, all six episodes are on YouTube. And not necessarily amazing high def, but certainly watchable. So definitely check them out. Definitely. Thanks again, Justin, for doing this on on the short notice. But, My pleasure. Uh, I was going to say, well, if there was any way I would get you back on the podcast, this is probably one of the very few things that would do it. <laughs> yeah, and all the, yeah, uh, you know, we can't rule out future appearances. Depends on what the subject is. I was going to say, now, if we somehow, I was going to say, if we, if, if Ricky Steamboat's last match is not an embarrassment, we may have to be back on to talk about that. <laughs> depending on depending on who exactly else ends up in that match, we may have to talk about that. Uh, uh, that could be interesting. I would say you are one of the many, many Mid-Atlantic fans that I know. You know, people who were around for, for the first time who still clutch at their bosom uh, the, the Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat that we want to remember from – 1983, not 2022. Yeah. Or, or uh, one of the few people who associates uh, the song Serious by the Alan Parsons Project with Ricky Steamboat and not with the Chicago Bulls. True. <laughs> thanks, thanks again, Justin, for doing this. Uh, we may have one more episode of the plot before the month is over. We're going to, we won't be super serious again this time. We'll definitely be more lighthearted if we do have time to do another episode. There should be another episode of the Winter Palace out in the next week with uh, some more wrestling chat, but we won't preview that because we haven't recorded yet, and you never know what will happen. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will talk to you next time.